Welcome to season nine of Live Well, Be Well with me, Sarah Ann Macklin. Happiness is sort of fleeting and it's something that you catch, you know, because I do think there's a sort of tendency to think, oh, well, you know, I should be happy all the time. A friend of mine, Ben Miller, said the comedian's worst fear is being laughed at. I think comedy is a good way of dealing with adversity, I think, and it often comes out you know, difficult situation. Oh, here we go, we're still going. That's <laughs> <laughs> the ending I thought. Oh, there you go. <laughs> the Live Well Be Well podcast is about exploring our individual elements of mental, physical and emotional health through sharing stories and expert knowledge to guide you to living well and being well, whatever that means for you. We have a phenomenal series ahead of us. Today is World Mental Health Day which is a day really close to my heart for a multitude of reasons. Without us sharing conversations, we never engage in topics which can help us and educate us. One pillar which is essential to our well-being is happiness. And who better to speak to about what makes us happy than one of Britain's most loved comedians who has brought happiness to many through comedy and now through his children's novels, Unhappiness, however, is not only increasing around the world, it's rising at unprecedented rates. So I really wanted to kick off this season talking about happiness and how we can create more of it within our world and within ourselves. In this conversation, David and I explore what happiness really means and can we engineer our own happiness? It was such a joy to have David in my home talking about all the things that make him and the world a happier, better place. David. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I'm well, welcome to my home. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's very nice. <laughs> not been here before. It's beautiful. How are you, first of all? I'm good, thank you. Yeah? Yes. I'm raring to go. Okay, good. Well, <laughs> you don't know what we're going to ask you today, but no. we're going to talk about happiness because Wonderful. that's something that I think is really important and so much of your career is made people very happy well it's nice you should see it that way <laughs> <laughs> well I hope so that's the aim anyway yeah, that's the aim when you're doing comedy is to make people happy I'm sure it has made some people happy I've also made everybody happy <laughs> but I hope it's made some people happy so I always start off all of my questions with asking the same one which is what have you changed your mind about the most in the last 10 years oh that's a good one well I became a parent in the last 10 years oh, yeah. So it wasn't like I was against <laughs> having children or anything like that, but I suppose that is a sort of just such a massive change when you become a parent. And also, I think for me, it's suddenly like everything shifts because everything now becomes about them and their happiness and all your sort of egotism and selfishness of pursuing your career and thinking that's all that matters suddenly goes out the window. And every decision you now make is about them and their happiness you know mm -hmm. so every time I get offered a job it's like is it going to take me away from my son you know mm -hmm. uh, filming abroad doing a long theatre run whatever it might be I just think well you know even every time anyone asks me to, to go out for dinner or something like that I go well I can't, I've got my son that night and I don't want to miss you know being with him mm -hmm. I mean I do change my mind about lots of different things I mean culture shifts a lot hasn't it so you sort of you know you 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 were constantly sort of examining the world and your place in it and you know whether you're doing good or not that kind of thing so constantly thinking about that all the time because mm -hmm. I mean that, that a lot it feels like that has accelerated 
So I'm 50, well, I said 50 years old, I'm trying to exaggerate, I'm 51 years old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 51 years old, so I know I don't look it, but, um, uh, you, you know, but just the last 10 years, I've noticed the biggest cultural shifts. And so it's been sort of exciting keeping up with that and just, you know, it's just a diff different world all the time, isn't it? It's changing all the time and it's exciting. Change is exciting. It is. And if you think back to when you did Little Britain, to the comedy now, how has your mindset changed? Well, the thing is that at the time it was meant, we started making it 20 years ago, you're trying to reflect the world around you. And that was what the show was trying to do. And that's why I think it was successful because it, it satirized situations and, and people and things of, of, the, of the time. So if you were to do it now, you, they would have to be, it, it would have to satirize this moment in time. Mm -hmm. So it would be different for sure. But I still think, you know, people really want to laugh and people mm -hmm. can understand, I think, sort of where you're coming from and if you're coming from a good place and all that kind of thing. So we're talking about happiness because laughter is actually one of the most important things for how we feel emotionally, physically, mentally. But how has your happiness changed in the last 10 years? Because generally as a society, we've been through a lot that's mm. affected how we feel. So how's your happiness changed in the last 10 years? Well, I would say the day that my son was born was the happiest day of my life and every day since then has been happier and happier. And that's what I tell him. It's not entirely true. I mean, obviously, there's been a few days where things have gone wrong, and you know, but I mean, You're just it sound like having kids. Just is generally, just generally, I mean, that's that's the way it's heading. So that has been for me. It's been completely transformative, mm -hmm. and you know, it's the best thing in the world. And just having someone that you love, you know, in in, in such a it's overwhelming way, you think you know what love is because you've you've experienced romantic love, but it's very different and. There's sort of no downside to it whatsoever. So we just it's like your best friend. We just love each other and you love spending time together. And that's what kids want from you. You know, I know people say, oh, I'm not ready to have children because X, Y, Z. And you think well, all they want is to spend time with you. Mm -hmm. So as long as you're together, it doesn't really matter what you're doing. You can be doing something incredibly boring. But I just love my, my favorite thing is making him laugh, you know, and having silly in jokes and things like that. And they change over the years, but... Things like getting the dog and sitting with the dog, hiding my head behind the dog and doing the dog's voice to him and stuff like that, which you thought was hilarious. You know, and then remember the thing with kids is they haven't seen all these jokes before because they, they have just been born. So they think it's amazing. <laughs> they think it's amazing if you can do sort of like do a silly voice of a dog or something like that. They think it's hilarious. So, so we have a lot of fun together and that's, he gives me happiness all the time and even just sort of thinking about him or looking at a picture of him or anything like that, all of those things will make me happy. Yeah. So what does happiness mean to you then? I, I remember Philip Larkin in a letter, I think, saying, you know, happiness is sort of fleeting and it's something that you catch. You know, because I do think there's a sort of tendency to think, oh, well, you know, I should be happy all the time. Mm. But, I mean, it's something, yeah. it feels like something that you catch in a moment, doesn't it? And you just realise, oh, I'm really happy. Well, it's, it's a really nice feeling, isn't it? But it's not necessarily all the time. I mean, there's being content is one thing, isn't it? That's being how I would reference happiness. Is that like contentment? contentment. Yes, yeah. I think that to be at sort of peace mm. in some way. But you know, I'd, for me, I'm always sort of striving. Mm. So I'm always trying to be creative and always trying to do things. And there's you know some stress comes with that. So things frustrate me and stuff, of course. Um, 
so there's moments of those things but just generally I feel in a happy place because I have my son I'm very lucky I have a successful career we get to do the things we want in life we've met lots of extraordinary people gone to amazing places you know I just feel I just feel really lucky and I feel like you've got one life and you know I feel like I want to do something with it you know ultimately all I want to be judged on is you know was I a good father that's all it matters to me but it is nice also to have some things you can put that out there in the world that people like. I mean, I still feel in the grand scheme of things, I'm completely and utterly irrelevant. <laughs> because, hey, yeah, because why? well, because on the grand scheme of things, if you really want to go, you know, be an important person, you're going to be like Lino da Vinci or something. <laughs> you sold 15 bet. million books. Yes, like but I mean, the Royal Doll. well, I don't know. You I know mean, what that's... I mean? Yeah, there's always more to achieve. There's always more, and that's good. I kind of felt. When I started achieving some of my ambitions, I thought, oh, well, I just give up now because I just thought, oh, God, I'd love one day to have a comedy show on BBC Two. That's all I care about. Then that happens and you go, oh, okay, I better have a new ambition now. But I think what really matters ultimately is feeling that your work has a quality and you being happy with it. Because someone somewhere will always say it's crap. Somebody somewhere doesn't like it. You know, and that's fine. That's their opinion. But you just have to feel happy with it. I have to feel, you know, when I'm reading the book with my son or something like that, that I feel like, oh, it's a good, it's good, you mm-hmm. know. And I have to feel that I'm at peace with that. And mm. I did my absolute best at the time. Mm-hmm. There are also ma- magic moments, like, for example, my first book was called The Boy in the Dress, and it was turned into a musical. Robbie Williams and Guy Chambers wrote the songs. And it was staged at the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford-upon-Avon. And that was amazing because it was a different experience because I was sat in the audience and I was watching this show that sort of, I guess, you know, although obviously loads of brilliant people, the actors, the designers, director, everybody, had done an incredible job. At the end of the day, it's still like it, it, none of it would have existed if, if the, I hadn't written the book. So do you know what I mean? So it yeah. felt like a dream. I mean, better than I could ever imagine, but... It was like it was like sort of my dream had come to life, and it was the most extraordinary thing. Because normally I would be on the stage or something, you know, mm-hmm. trying to entertain people, and and so you've got all the stresses of that. Whereas I didn't have that. I was just sat in the audience and just and just it was the most amazing thing. I don't think I've ever felt the same way as I did on the watching the first preview of that show, and then the second it ended, it was like the whole audience were up giving it a standing ovation, and I was like. Oh my God, it was the a euphoria that I had never experienced before. Do you think that's one of your most memorable moments? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so, yeah, because I guess it was just something that was outside of me, do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And it was like, it just couldn't have been any better. You can imagine the Royal Shakespeare Company, the kind of people you, you, you know, your top of your list of great, you know, theatre producers in the world and so it, it just couldn't have been any better the songs were fantastic or lots of things that I obviously had nothing to do with made it brilliant <laughs> so Apart I'm not from your book I'm not <laughs> saying script. it was all good to me but it was just like oh wow this is just amazing this was just an idea in my head one day and then I wrote it down as a book and then it was like oh, okay and then you know at that point I've got no idea it's going to become a musical 10 years later mm. and then it's going to be so brilliant so yeah there are kind of magic moments like that and I think you've got to savor those oh yeah and pinch yourself and and also just always be really grateful that people would kill to have these things. But it's know. so interesting because so many times we're not present in that moment. So we're kind of just going, what's the next thing? And actually staying present and acknowledging what you've just achieved in that moment is something that so many mm. of us just forget. 
No, I think it's very important. Are you a therapist? Because that was a great thing to say, actually. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's right. Yeah, just be in the moment. And that's it. Yeah. And there's with my, when I'm with my son and we're just, you know, walking along in, just in the park, mm. walking to school with the dogs or something. It's mm. just it's just like just being totally present. That's why things like mobile phones are so terrible for all of this because, you know, this you see so many people sort of dragging their kids around and they're on their phone. You Are know. you quite strict with yours? Because I can imagine that must really kill creativity. You have to, have to be. But at the same time, it's this crazy thing now, isn't it, where even on your phone, there's 10 different ways people can contact you with various sort of, you know, Twitter, Instagram, text, email, WhatsApp. Well, there's any sort of just constantly being bombarded mm. with things. And also, you get used to this idea that you have to be constantly stimulated. So this idea that you're just walking in, in the park and just alone with your thoughts and you're sort of thinking, oh, I should be processing some information. Right? I need to check what's happening in the news. I need to find out what's happening in Iran or what's, you know, and, and all around the world. And so it's quite hard to just sort of sit with your thoughts on your own. Certainly doing creative work, you need to be able to do that because if you're just distracted the whole time, you're never going to be immersed in your you know, in your story, with your characters, you know, and that's what you really need to do is when you're writing a book, you need to sort of visualize everything and then write it down. But if you were on your phone the whole time, you're, the spell is broken. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So it's quite, they're terrible things. <laughs> yeah, but it's a dopamine effect. Yes, it, it is. You get, you into it. Yeah, and you're constantly thinking, where's my phone, where's my phone? And I've had those things, you know, when your phone's being repaired or something <laughs> and you're not with it for like a morning. And it's like... I don't know. Anxiety I, I've never taken on. heroin, but I, I don't know if it's like that. But there's the incredible anxiety of like, well, where is it? People must have contacted me. And then you get your phone back and you've had like one text message <laughs> from like O2 or something. And that's it. And you go, oh. Uh, and you know, an Amazon passes on its way. But it's, yeah, I worry about, you know, future generation with that because it's just such now an important a part of life, isn't it? And also mm. kids want their phones younger and younger. And Has yours got one yet? No, he hasn't, no. But he'll have to have one one day. And normally when the kids go to secondary school. They'll have one. If the parents agree, they tend to go. I'm not saying that's a hard and fast rule, but I'm just saying that tends to be mm. what happens. Mm. And then it feels like it's a practical thing, isn't it? Because you want to know where your child is and you want to be able to contact them. But, uh, but yeah, it's a constant distraction. Did you have that thing on your phone where it says your, your phone usage is more or less this week? You have that one. Do you know what I've started doing, though? You can pick on the iPhone different focus modes. And right. I do work 10 to 4, and so no one can contact me. It comes through, but I don't see it, because I'm really dyslexic, and my focus, my attention is really short. So if somebody's pinging a message at me, I cannot write, I can't focus, I can't get creative. Whereas when I put that on, it can still come through, but it doesn't show on my screen, and so it doesn't draw my focus. Mm. Well, you've got all Basically, the answers. It keeps me, like, attentive. Otherwise, I just do nothing all day. Well, yeah, and you realise you've just achieved nothing because you've been looking at a picture of Kim Kardashian's ankles <laughs> on the Mail Online. Yeah, but you end up going down like... A rabbit hole, exactly. yes, I think now. I think I need to do some research on dinosaurs for my new book. And then after a while, I realise I'm watching <laughs> an old interview Russell branded on Loose Women. And I'm like, what? What? where How did, did I, I get from up? dinosaurs to that? And I was like, what did I even start to... You know, that's the other thing about computers because of... You know, if you were a writer, you know, Agatha Christie or Ian Fleming or something, you sat there with a typewriter, didn't you? Um, but now you're sat there with a computer and then the portal into everything that's going on in the world. You know, you have to be disciplined not to 
not to get lost in those rabbit holes. I want to tell you about my secret weapon that has become my saviour in recent months. All plants deliver delicious, healthy, plant-based, chef-made meals to your door, which are ready to heat and eat when you need them. Their dishes contain at least two of your five a day, and some even four of your five a day. My personal favourite is the miso and tamari tofu bowl, which also won a great taste award this year. All plants are also Europe's largest plant-based kitchen, which isn't a surprise when you see their fantastic variety of meals. Head to allplants.com to order and subscribe for your first order and you can save a whopping 25% off when using the code LWBW. All plants save me time and have been a huge saviour in making sure I stay healthy even when busy. And I hope they can for you too. Make sure you use the code LWBW for 25% off. You know one of my favourite quotes actually from your books, which was The Billionaire Boy? was, and I need to make sure I, I say this properly, but it's strange how sometimes you can be so happy it goes all the way around to sadness. Well, that's when you cry, isn't it? When you don't really realise why you're crying when something amazingly happy happens, you know, like, you know, your wedding day or the day your child's born or whatever, and you're sort of, or you, I don't know, you see something extraordinary, even like Brent's Got Talent, you see a group of kids doing a song or something like that, you like that and you start crying and it, and and you don't quite know why that why that is I mean, it's extraordinary isn't it yeah. we're extraordinary as human beings we're extraordinary creatures but um yeah that's that's, that's actually sounds like i'm actually quite a good writer that's you quite are a good, good writer <laughs> well i love how you're not believing this for yourself hopefully by the end of this interview i'm going to convince you, you well you know i i, I work phenomenal i writer. definitely work hard and i do the best i can do but mm. i don't think it's a good idea to be your own critic and also if you're going to listen to what people think about you, you know, you can't, you can't have it both ways. Someone's saying you're great. Someone's saying you're terrible. Mm. What do you want to believe? You know, and it's not a good idea to wander around the world going, no, everyone thinks I'm great. Because <laughs> you're going to really, but you also have to have a really sense of people. confidence yeah. to be able to put yourself out there because especially going from comedy to then writing, that's a really big career change. And I've obviously not done what you've done, but I've gone from the fashion industry and kept in there, but then gone much more into the holistic side. And I felt a huge amount of judgment trying to transcend into another thing that where people just weren't seeing me as that. And I found that really difficult. Mm. How did you find Well, I think there's still that? resistance. There's still people. <laughs> there's people who go, he doesn't write his books and they're crap. And I go, you can't have it both ways. Either, either I do write them and they're crap or someone else writes them and they're quite good. I mean, me and Matt co-created Little Britain. We wrote all those sketches. We created all those characters. So for me, it wasn't a massive creative shift to be able to write a book. There were things I realized I could do in a book that I couldn't do in a comedy sketch, like you could go on an emotional journey with the characters. The Boy in the Dress is probably my most emotional book, and it, it's you know full of moments that are quite sort of tear-jerking and stuff. And I realized there was, there was a whole world that I'd not explored with my with my imagination before but yeah I mean each book just should be judged on its own merits really isn't it? I mean it's one of these things like who is qualified to write 
a, a book or a children's book. I think the thing about children's books is we read something which we think is kind of simple, like something like The Tiger Who Came to Tea, you know, mm. and we think, oh, well, there's a tiger who came for tea. I mean, you know, I'll do the crocodile that came for dinner, you know, that'd be fun. <laughs> but I mean, it's the thing is, there is real genius there in the construction of the story and in the illustrations by Judith Carr. And, and so it's one of these things I think everyone thinks they're going to have a go at, but probably, like anything, to do a good one is probably hard and to come up with something original is, is, is hard. But you had that thought, that first book, now, I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts. We'll have a lot of thoughts. But what was it that you were like, no, I'm actually going to pursue this and write a book about it? Like, what was it that was so strong about that? Ah, well, I just think it wouldn't leave me, as in it was constantly sort of spinning around in my head. It was, it was a bit uh, influenced by a real kid I met because, you know, when you become well-known on television, obviously people write you letters and stuff like that. That's very sweet. And um, particularly then, because there was no other way of people to contact you, so they, they, they'd write. And I got this letter from this boy who dressed up as Emily Howard, the character I played in, in, in Little Britain. And he'd gone to school, and it was quite, it was a sweet little picture, and he wanted an autograph or something. And, and then I was, we were doing the show in Manchester, and, and he was there with his mum, and he said, oh, I, I sent you a letter, do you remember? And actually, because it was a memorable letter, I did remember. Obviously, you can't remember every single communication, but this one I did. And I thought, oh, he's quite cool. And I know he was only dressing up as a comedy character, but I thought, oh, he's quite cool. He's going to school dressed as a girl. And this was like, you know, I don't know, 18 years ago or something. And I thought, oh, what if he just really wanted to dress as a girl and went, you know, and, and how would his friends react, how would his family react, how would his teachers react, all that kind of thing. And, and I thought, I just need to write this now because I, it keeps spinning around my head and I think it's a book about difference. It's a book of celebrating difference. Mm. And I felt like it was something I wanted to write, something that was personal to me as well. And I was just in the Lego store in London with my son recently and... Uh, a trans person came up to me like late teens or something, maybe 19 or 20 or something like that and said, oh, I read your book, you know, when I was younger and it really, really helped me come to terms with my identity. I, I was yeah. just, I was so sort of overcome with that because, you know, you don't, you don't know what people are thinking and feeling about your work and you can't expect everyone to think and feel the same way. Someone mm -hmm. thinks it's great, someone thinks it's terrible. But the fact that it had, you know, helped somebody was, was really, really powerful, and I was very proud. And, you know, you don't know what people are going to say when they come up to you. Mm. But that was that was a big moment, and I thought, okay, so it's done some good, so I'm, I'm pleased. I mean, that was the aim of the book. Mm. And it's interesting how that book was, I think, came out in 2008, so 14 years ago. So obviously a lot has happened since then around this issue of, mm. you know, gender identity and stuff. And it's great, isn't it? The world has changed, and, you know, the world is changing and there's more acceptance, mm. and that's, that's only a, a wonderful thing. Mm. But how do you deal with... I think you have to have such a strong sense of self to be able to put yourself out there and have a lot of people talk quite openly to your face about things that you don't necessarily agree with, and that adversity that so many young adults face. How did you deal with that? Because you even titled your, your memoir, Camp David. Mm. And so it was very at the forefront of... Mm. just going to be myself and I don't really care what you're going to say no, about me well, but how do you I mean that's still such a you know admiration thing to do not many people have the strength to, to do that well a friend of mine Ben Miller said the comedian's worst fear is being laughed at and he says comedy is a way of controlling people's laughter at you 
so when I was a kid at school, I was teased and things were being camp, and, and it was a time when, you know, a, a, an insult in a school playground was being gay. It was like, oh, and I went to all boys school, so it was like, you're gay. And that was like the worst thing you could be called. Mm. It's just very sad, isn't it, really? Because, of course, there were gay kids at the school, but they obviously didn't, they couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't say anything because, you know, they, they would have had such a tough time. I mean, I hope things are different now. I'm not, you know, privy to what's going on in every playground in the country, but I, I pray that things are different. And so uh, me trying to be funny and part of being camp is playing up to it, you see, because I thought, okay, you've given me this label. And yeah, I am naturally, I, I always felt naturally quite sort of camp in, in, in some ways, or feminine in some ways, whatever. And uh, so I sort of played up to it. And so then I sort of... It was a way of dealing with it, I think, and, and then controlling it in a way. You know what I mean? And, and sometimes people do that kind of thing, wear the sort of badge they've been given with, with pride. I think comedy is a good way of dealing with adversity, mm. I think, and it often comes out of, you know, difficult situations. And it's a way sometimes, you know, you hear funny stories about people being shouted at in the street and shouting something back, you know, like... <laughs> gay friends of mine said you know sometimes somebody would like you know shout something horrible you know oh you queer or something like that over the street and then they go that's how I started you know and things like that it's actually <laughs> and actually camp humor um has always been a great weapon I don't know if you've ever you've ever read The Naked Civil Servant by Quentin Crisp you're a bit young but Quentin Crisp was a very um flamboyant homosexual who was born probably around the turn of the century, like 1900 or something. And he he wrote a book called The Naked Civil Servant, a memoir, and it turned into a film that John Hurt played him. And he just had a wonderful way of, <laughs> of sort of dealing with people who were like cruel to him about that. You know, he would, it, some boy would go, there's a bit in the film where some boys, oh, are you queer or something? And the guy's, how dare you? I'm one of the stately homos of Britain or something like that. You know, just that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I've always felt humour is quite a good way of dealing with any of that adversity. But I also think you've got to have thick, quite thick skin if you're putting yourself in the public arena. I mean, just imagine being a politician. <laughs> just imagine being Liz Truss today or something like that. I mean, you must have to have really thick yeah. skin. Because, I mean, people do not hold back with mm. politicians, do they? They can't be a comedian. Mm, Boris Johnson was, <laughs> but uh, Liz Truss doesn't seem to be playing for laughs in quite the same way. You just have to have a thick skin and you just can't, you just can't be worried by every single bit of criticism mm. because otherwise you're going to get nowhere. Mm. But I remember I did a play with this brilliant director called Michael Grandage, who's actually just directed this movie with Harry Styles that's called My Policeman. And he's oh, a great yeah. theatre director and he's directed some films and he's a hugely talented guy. And I did Midsummer Night's Dream with him, with Sheridan Smith. And he said this great thing, which I thought was great, guys. Person sat in CE9 having a life change experience, uh, watching the best night of theatre of their life. Person sat in E10, bored out of their brain. <laughs> I just thought it was a great way of looking at it, wasn't it? Because when you do a theatre show and we'd come out at the end and you know, our applause, and you would see some people, you know, on their feet, like, this is amazing. And other people like, this, you know, and so you haven't pleased everybody and you can't worry about it because you can't please everybody. And it was that just a so good true. way of... Because you're really trying to win them over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you've got this... You're doing a theatre show, you've got two and a half hours, right? Win everyone over. I just think, oh, God, I want to get every one of you laughing, having the best time of your life. But there's still some people who just didn't like it. 
You know what I mean? That is true. And they can't worry about it. You know, yeah. you just can't worry about it. You can't please everybody. And I don't know if you have conversations with people like, you know, like one of my favorite comedians is Will Farrell. But, you know, I remember a friend of mine said, oh, you like Will Farrell? I don't know Will Farrell. I don't find Will Farrell. I was thinking, for me, it's absolutely incomprehensible that someone would not find Will Farrell funny. Because to me, he's like the funniest person on the planet. But there's someone somewhere who doesn't think he's funny. But is Will Ferrell worried about it? I very much doubt it. <laughs> you know, and he shouldn't be, should he? And you just can't, I just think you've, you've just got to be able to deal with all that and let it sort of wash over you. Because it's just, it's noise. It's just noise, isn't it, really? And and that's fine. And the, the thing now is that we're connected all the time, if we want to be, to people who have a criticism about us you know whether they want to tell us on social media or something or but you know it's just if you start reading it it's going to kind of make you go nuts isn't it but it's not necessarily a new it's not exactly a new thing Do you, have you ever heard of a comedian called tony hancock yeah so he was one of the most famous comedians in the country in like the 50s and 60s and he is like utter genius utter genius and i met the writers who wrote hancock gorton and simpson and they said that Tony Hancock got a letter through the post saying, I don't like you. No one in my house likes you and no one on my streets like you. Just a complete stranger at the height of his fame. And remember, this was a time when if you were on television, 20 million people would be watching you. And he was like a kind of folk hero. You know what I mean? Famous beyond the way anyone is famous. Maybe like Peter Kay or Billy Connolly or Victoria mm. Wood, something like that. But, but even more than that, in a way, because it was such a, it was a smaller culture. It was less, mm. less, less, less to see. And he brought the the letter in and they ended up writing a, a, um, a, a show about it but there's always someone somewhere who wants to tell you that they don't like what you do and you can't we well, can't worry about it you can't and do you know what I think that's held you in very good stead for all of your charity work because when you swam the channel the English channel and also the eight days of the Thames which was phenomenal the mental endurance you need to keep going for 11 hours where you have nothing else but your own voices in your head is really tough. How mm. did you, how did, well, how, first of all, why did you do that? Yeah, I think it's more of, it's as much a mental challenge as a physical challenge doing I think it, it's in more. It, an endurance thing. Yeah. Mm. Because of course you're constantly, you're cold, you're tired, your brain is going, so why don't you just get out and this will all be over? But of course. Because remember it, your coach mind, did when you did the Portsmouth to the Isle of Wight. Yeah. And you were like, I'm going to keep going. Mm, well, I have a layer of fat on me and he didn't. He was, a, he was an Olympic pentathlete and so he was incredibly fit but he had no no, no fat on him mm. so i wouldn't advise you doing the channel because because actually people are really good at it I tend to be a little bit heavier our next partner has a product i and my best friend use literally every day although i always advocate food first sometimes when our diet falls short due to stress or a lack of time we need the extra support and that's what I needed come September. I started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens because like most people, I struggle to maintain a healthy, balanced diet when things are busy. In these times, I always like to have something as an insurance policy. So what is this stuff? Well, with one delicious scoop of AG1 in water every day, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced ingredients, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, 
energy, recovery, focus, and even aging. There is no need for a million different pills and supplements now to look after your health. I've personally been using AG1 for the last four weeks. I have it every morning before my morning coffee. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D3, K2, and a five free travel packs with your first purchase. That's five free travel packs with your first purchase. That's mad. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash LWBW. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash LWBW to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So yeah, the challenge is, is in the mind, but I was on a, I was on a trip to Ethiopia, a comment relief trip with Matt. Little Britain had just started and, and we were starting to do things yeah. for, for comment relief, like we did a special episode DVD and they wanted to, they wanted to show us the work they were doing because they wanted us to be able to talk with some confidence about what they were up to, you know, because it's all very well to go, oh yeah, the money's helping some people thousands of miles away. But if you've seen it with your own eyes, you've got stories to tell. Mm-hmm. And so I was there and then the head of Comet Relief, Kevin Cahill, said, oh, is there anything sporty you've ever fancied doing? And I went, well, I'm, I like swimming. I've always fancied swimming the channel. And he went, you can do it next year for sport relief. And I was like, what? And I thought he'd forget about it. And then we got back to London and he said, right, I've set you up a meeting with the Channel Swimming Association president. I was like, right. I thought, oh. And then they said, um, are we going to meet the train? I was like, okay. And then they had this thing. They said, we've got to send you for a heart test because if you've got a, any kind of heart defect, we can't make you do it because there's a chance you'd have a heart attack. You know, like when sometimes yeah, people yeah. have, you don't know, and they're running around on a football pitch and they have a heart attack. And, they, so, and I was praying there was something wrong with me. I was praying there was some heart defect that I had that would take me out of it, but I didn't. And then it all just started sort of happening. And then I was on this journey and then I was... I don't know, embedded in it, and I really wanted to do it. But the other thing that was happening was we were touring the Little Britain stage show at the time. And, you know, I've never been one for staying up late, drinking, taking drugs or anything like that. Yeah, because some people, they go on tour and it's like, whoa, <laughs> they're going to be up till dawn. You know, I don't know, doing whatever. But I'd be like, come back, have a mint tea and go to bed. So we had most of the days free. And so it was, so if they wanted me to go and spend four hours in a swimming pool or swim in the North Sea when I was, you know, I'm north somewhere, I could, I could do it. So it was great. So it kind of kept me on a very even keel mm. throughout the whole tour. Mm. And it's quite a weird thing touring because you're away from home, you're away from, you know, you're with some of your friends, but you're away from other friends and family. And, you know, it's just, when you get, it's, it's, it does something to your head as well. There's now we're playing arenas and there's 10,000 people yeah, having a great time. And so it, it was really good having that other focus. How long did you swim every day? Well, it kind of built hours. up. And some of the training swims were eight hours. So I'd get in Dover. I'd get up at six o'clock in the morning, drive to Dover Harbour, swim up and down for eight hours. I mean, it's so unbelievably kind of boring. You sort of tread water and have like a, a little sugary, well, the squirty sort of things, you know, oh, like yeah. just some, some glucose or something. And you just keep going to five o'clock, and then you drive home, but and that's the whole day. How do you keep your mental state focused and you not go quite mad? You just have to make lists of things that you like, things that make you happy. So for me, it would be like you know, like Beatles albums with all the songs. Try and remember the songs and work my way through, you know, an album 
you know, do I know the lyrics to all these mm. songs on Revolver or something like that? Mm. Okay, the first track's Tax Man. Okay, let's start there and try and see if I can... You know, so you're trying to pass the time. Trying to think of James Bond movies. I'm quite obsessed with James Bond movies. And it's like, let's think of, you know, the pre, pre-credit sequence of each one. What happens in each one? Can mm-hmm. you remember what happens? That, that sort of stuff, just to pass the time, singing songs in your head and stuff. But saying that, being in the sea, it never gets exactly, it never gets boring exactly because there's always something around and yeah. you're suddenly little patches of cold water or you see things floating or, you know, you're looking around you the whole time. But um, I do like swimming. Well, I used to like swimming. Do you still uh, like it now? You, you yeah, I mean, PTSD I like swimming. <laughs> I like I like swimming, but and I if I see like a the sea or going you know or a lake or something, I always kind of want to get in it. Yeah, so mm. I do have that desire, and I like I'm quite good in the water. Mm. I'm amphibious, so I'm sort of my body works quite well in the water because I'm tall and got big hands and big feet. So it's kind of I'm I sort mean, of built for it. It's amazing for your mental health swimming in the sea. Mm. Yeah, I think cold water's good because you, you feel a kind of euphoria when you get out, actually. Mm. Do you still swim? Yeah, all the time. Most mornings? No, not every day. But I mean, certainly when I get the opportunity to, I do. Mm. Yeah, I like swimming in the pool. And, but I love swimming in the sea mm. and wherever I am. I mean, my dream is actually go to go to the Arctic. Is that your swim. next challenge? Well, I don't know. Can we announce it now? No, because I think it costs so much money to get to the <laughs> Arctic that I'm not sure it's that sensible. But, but you know when you see like frozen planets and you see the wildlife mm. there and I would love to get in you know, amongst mm. the icebergs and swim you know, and see some of the wildlife there. I'm probably a bit dangerous. There's killer whales and things that might drag you down and drown you. But I'd, I love any sort of body of water to swim in. So yeah, mm. so I, I do genuinely love it. And I'm glad I did those things. But I don't think I'm going to do What was your most it. memorable moment? I remember you saving a disabled drowning dog mm. down the Thames. That was along the Thames. I tell you the most memorable bit was when I got to the other side in France, um, my mum gets seasickness, but, but she'd, she'd come on a boat to follow my challenge. But obviously I'm going slowly a couple of miles an hour, that's all, it's, it's as fast as you can swim. So the boat's going very slowly. And so when the boat's going slowly, there's kind of more, you know, more weight. Then you get more of a sense of movement. And when I got to the other end, I saw my dad, like, on the deck of the boat, but I didn't see my mum. I thought, that's strange. And then uh, we got back to dry land, and she'd been on this boat for, like, 12 hours or something. And I said, oh, I didn't see you at the end. What was that? And she said, oh, I was was below deck. I've been throwing up for the last, like, 12 hours. And I said, oh, you shouldn't have come. She went, I wouldn't have missed it for the world. <laughs> Even though she was throwing up and didn't see anything. But she wanted to be there for me, you know. So, so that was probably the best thing. Because I think at the end of the day, like making your parents proud, if you're lucky enough to have like, you know, your parents are around, you have good relationship with your parents. It's, it's one of those things, isn't it? Mm. You know, that you want more than anything. Your mum spoke in that documentary, actually, of you swimming the channel. And she said that, you know, you're a real perfectionist and you really like to put your mind to things and you're so determined. And But do you see yourself as a perfectionist? Well, I think a lot of people say they're perfectionists, don't they? And you wonder whether they actually <laughs> are because their work isn't perfect. I think I'm very driven. I think I'm definitely very driven. And I want things to be right. Mm. Yeah, so to some extent, yeah. I mean... Saying that, I don't think the work I've created is perfect, so that's sort of a different thing, isn't it? But I certainly try my hardest, and I, I'm definitely driven. Yeah. And I notice that, because I find it confusing when I meet people who are not driven at all. I find it a bit strange, because mm. I think, really, you just want to lay in bed and not do anything? You don't want to do anything? You don't want to 
just do something or use your time in some way. I find it very strange when people are really complacent about the time they have on the planet. But do you think that then impacts your performance or happiness in any way? Well, personally, I think you need something. I I would be unhappy if I woke up on a day with nothing to do. That's my idea of unhappiness. So for me, a happy day is I've got to get up and I've got to achieve things. I've got to do things. Mm-hmm. And actually, I know people who very periods in their life have been very unhappy. And one of the things they often do is they stay up all night and then they sleep in all day because mm-hmm. they want to kind of avoid the world, don't they? They want to avoid life. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's like early night, if you can, get up, do stuff and get, get things done. I mean, I love it. And so purpose, I think, is really important. And you can have, That's it doesn't okay. have to be work, does it? I mean, am I looking after your kid or whatever, keep, keeping a home, whatever, cooking a meal, whatever, something, working for a charity. But with no purpose whatsoever, I think people tend to really unravel a bit. Mm. And I think that's one of the worst things, isn't it, of like not having a purpose. Mm. So I couldn't imagine not having work to do, for example. What would you say your purpose is? Because, I mean, your career has spanned from so many different dimensions. So you've given one million pounds of raising money for sports relief and charity. You know, you're a phenomenal author to many children and children's books. You're a comedian. You're a Britain's Got Talent judge. I mean, what for you would you say, because it's just so vast in what you've done, is something that's really purposeful to you? What's your purpose, would you say? Well, there's sort of different purposes across those spectrum of things. But I suppose ultimately it's to make other people happy is a lovely thing. And it's a wonderful thing that happens when you become well-known is that people are just happy to meet you. Mm. And you, you get invited to go and visit, you know, kids who are not well or to go into a hospital or wherever. school, And people are just happy you're there. Mm. You walk in and they're happy and it's the weirdest thing. Because it's just me. I don't know what you're so excited about. But, you know, it's a wonderful thing that the average person doesn't kind of get to do because mm. they create that excitement you know, of a surprise vitis or something is incredible. But ultimately, I just want to make people happy. I don't want to make kids... I mean, with, with the kids' books, I feel like there's probably a bigger mission, which is to try and get kids to read more. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm not saying I'm teaching them how to read, but I'm just saying to get them to read for pleasure mm. in a world where there's so many distractions for them. And so I feel like getting kids to read for pleasure and giving them a love of books... And I actually love trying to reach the kids who are reluctant readers. Go that into was me sc- when I was younger. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm me to some extent. And I love going to schools and I say, who, who likes books? Who thinks books are boring? And they're just boring, boring. Why do you think they're boring? It's just one boring. There's not enough killings. killings. And so I sort of thought, these are the ones you need to reach, you know? And you'll meet like a, you know, a kid who's 10 who's read every Harry Potter book. And you'll meet a kid who's 12 who's never read a book. So for me, the kid who's 12, if you're not going to get them now, they're going to lose out everything. So I'm, I hope that the books are reaching people that are reluctant readers, and that's certainly what I'm told from parents and things. You um, have sold 50 million copies. So you're definitely reaching a lot. It's, it seems that way, yeah. But also you want there to be a message that people take away from it. Like the boy in the dress is a bit different, you know. Yeah. So I used to go into schools and, I, and start talking about the book, and I'll say it's about... a you know, boy who comes to school dressed as a girl, and sometimes the kids would giggle, you know, at the idea of that. But it was good, also, but, but I would tell them, you know, it's something to be celebrated, to be different. If you feel different, that's a wonderful thing, and you should never be shy of that. Mm. You know, and I think those sort of messages are 
important because mm-hmm. kids are often feel they have to conform in a, in a situation like a school. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember talking to Tom Ford, I interviewed him for something at GQ, and he said so. He actually says when you're before you go to school, you're kind of most yourself because you you if you want to go and dress up in all your mother's clothes or do whatever, once you start socializing with other kids that's when you start to become aware of like societal norms Mm. and i thought that was quite an interesting way of looking at it how free some kids feel and then you go to school you suddenly have to you don't want to transcend the rules that have been set by the kids do you often you think i better dress this way and act this way and but you know what a wonderful thing how boring would the world be if we were all the same I mean, I love when people are different. And, you know, sometimes you go out and you see, like, some cool kind of club kids, you know, like, dressed up in extraordinary. You know, they want to be the next Lee Bowery or something. And they're, they're dressed up in this way. And I always make a point of going, I say, you're brilliant. You're fantastic. No, never, ever stop dressing like this. You make the world a better place. Because it's great when you mm-hmm. see people who are different, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful thing. It's like, wow, brilliant. Different cultures and all those kind of things. So to me, it's something that really needs to be celebrated. And and if kids feel different in some way, I mean, we all feel different in some way or another, don't we? Mm-hmm. Maybe more people, some more than others. But, but what an awful thing to feel you've got to hide it. And what a great thing to feel you can express it. And you must be able to do that quite closely with your nine-year-old now. Because you're actually, you have a child going mm. through that transition, nearing secondary school in a few years. How do you inspire him to stay himself and, and not change? Well, I just try and give him as much sort of positive energy feedback as I possibly can. Mm. But he's quite outspoken, he's funny, he's chatty, and I don't feel he, you know, is constrained by sort of rules or anything particular. I mean, I mean, as in, I don't feel like he's trying to suppress anything. Mm about himself to sort of please others he just is his own character mm-hmm. and it's wonderful to see and you want to create an environment where they're as happy and confident as possible and they can share any idea with you no question is a silly question mm-hmm. nothing they want to wear is silly nothing they want to do okay so do you have a formula for writing children's books because you do take every kid on a journey well i i think that the, the the biggest thing you need to do in a children's book is empower the child so they often say the best thing in a children's book is kill off the parents in the first chapter, which, you know, Harry Potter does, isn't it? I mean, Harry Potter's parents. And it allows the kid to go on an adventure. So I think that is very important to somehow empower them. And the second thing is to try and see the world through a child's eyes, try and think about how you felt about the world when you were a kid. Because when you're a kid, things feel, feel hyper real. And I mean by that is that there's a kind of you know you're half in the real world and you're half in a in a fantasy world when you're when you're a little kid and me and my sister we used to like look at an empty house on the road where we lived and we'd we'd think oh there's a ghost there and then one of us would say we saw the curtains move oh my and we obviously they hadn't and we just cycled away you know convinced that we'd seen a ghost and so i think and you make up stories about teachers we had this this teacher at our school who had these like he wore these shoes with big um almost like kind of hobnail kind of fronts them and we decided that he had to wear those shoes because he had no toes and then it became he doesn't have no no toes he's got special robot toes and stuff like that. I mean it's just utterly ridiculous but we were letting our imaginations run riot so I kind of think you've got to try and see the world through a child's eyes and put the child and children want to read a story 
most of the time, if not all the time, they want to see the child at the centre of that story being free of the kind of things that most children have to, you know, you know, have to be back from school at a certain time of this, that and the other. You know, it feels like you've got to kind of let set them free on an adventure. And that's all quite nice. I mean, this book's set in the 60s, so it's like pre-mobile phones, pre-internet, all that kind of thing. So it feels like, you know, you can explore a lot more. And people often say that with things like Eni Blyton and the Famous Five and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's like the kids were allowed to run riot on this sort of island and stuff and didn't have to be back for a certain time. The children in Narnia, they're all been evacuated, haven't they? So they're going to go and live in this house and so their parents aren't around and so... They can disappear off into a magical world and mm. no one notices that they're gone. I think it's that kind of thing. Do you feel quite free when you're writing? Because as you're talking about it, I'm just imagining daydreaming. And I was just thinking, I don't know when the last time I daydreamed. It's mm. quite a terrifying thought. Just as you were talking about imagination and then I was thinking about myself as a child. I don't have those daydreaming moments anymore. But I can imagine trying to write these, you have to get into that state. Yeah, you are daydreaming. And the great thing is that the only limit is your imagination with a book. Because I came from writing for television, and in television, you can write things like, oh, you know, we're going to have a scene at a football match or something, and they'll just go, well, we can't do that because, you know, it's, you're going to need 50,000 extras and it's going to cost too much money and you can't film on a football pitch, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, you know, we can't film in Buckingham Palace. We can't go into space. But, of course, in a book, you can do anything you want. Mm. You can be in the future, you can be in the past, you can... You know, it, the only limit is your imagination. And also, I think children's books are generally more imaginative than books for grown-ups mm. because I think children are more receptive to it. But if you think about things like the Harry Potter world or the Narnia world or Tolkien's world or something, you know, that they're all in a fantastical world, aren't they? And, and anything can happen in those worlds, and, that, and that's thrilling. What's your favourite character? Because that's something that my niece and nephew have asked to ask you personally. Well, I do think it's important to have a good villain. And when you've got a good villain, the story really takes off. And something I learned from Roald Dahl is try and make the villains funny as well, because then you like spending time with them. You think about Miss Trunchbull and Matilda. Oh, he's great. A great character. And also, you know, the, the way he plays it, she's violent towards the children, but she picks up a girl by her pigtails, spins around and throws her out the window, which is a funny and surreal image. If she punched children in the face, it would not be funny, it would just be horrific. But somehow, even though in real life, if someone threw someone around by pigtails, it would be horrific. In the imagination of Roald Dahl and the illustrations by Quentin Blake, it's funny. I feel like make you have good villains because villains make the story happen. And if you can, make them funny to some extent. So one of my favourite characters I created is Bert from Rat Burger, who's this, he's, he basically sells rat burgers outside of school but he pretends they're not rats and he like wants to catch rats and this is girl in the story zoe who's got a pet rat and he wants to kill it and put it in a burger and it's just he, he's he's i hope he's as my my idea for him is that he's as scary as he is funny mm. and i feel like that's what i really really aim to do in the books you know is to, is to make sure that there's great larger than life characters that are that even if they're really evil, they're funny too. Because if you just have a character that's evil with no humour at all, it feels a bit... I mean, obviously, people do it brilliantly. You know, Voldemort and Darth Vader, you know, there's no laughs with them. But, and do you know what it does remind me of? You know how many years he pantomime? Mm. And you have a villain. Yeah, and you like to boo really them. really funny. Yeah, it's funny, but also they are a bit horrible as well. Yeah. I mean, as a young child, you'd be scared. Mm. So, yeah, villains are important as well, I'd say, in your plot. Because mm. the hero just can only react to what the villain's doing. I do know that my nephew said he really wants you to make a book that's going to make him really scared. Oh, but 
But then I write He's scary. Only nine. Bo- okay, I write <laughs> I write what I hope are scary books, and I say, oh, the kids say, oh, I read your book, Demon Dentist. I say, oh, did you find it scary? And they go, nope. Like that's. <laughs> they know if they just didn't, or they don't want to admit it. But I was going, oh, well, it was meant to be scary. Nope. Like that. But I suppose kids don't <laughs> like to critic. admit. Yeah, they are best critics, but I think kids don't like to admit they were scared often, do they? So I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions. What's one ambition you're yet to fulfill, but you want to? I'd love there to be a big cinema movie of one of my books. That would be exciting. Well, I don't mind. I mean, anyone they want, but I just want (laughs) want Steven Spielberg to call and say, hey, I read your book. I want to make it into a movie. So I don't mind which one. Don't mind which one, Mr. Spielberg, but something like that. I mean, that would be amazing because that kind of brings it to a whole, brings your story to a whole new audience. And also great films live forever, don't they, in a way, so... They are being made, those TV programs. I don't think that's that un... No, I love the TV. I'm not, you know, I love it. But I just, it would just be really exciting. Cinema, seeing something on the big screen, you know, if there's a great filmmaker that does it, it'd just be really, really exciting, you know? And what's one thing that we don't know about you but would surprise us? Um, oh, dear. Uh, hang on. Okay, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Kanye West. Are you? you wouldn't necessarily think I would be the, the <laughs> average Kanye West fan as a 50-year-old, 51-year-old man, but I love Kanye West. I'm quite obsessed with Kanye West music. And I did once meet Kanye West. And did you tell him? Well, he was kind of in his own world a bit. It was quite, it's quite a name-droppery story, but I was on holiday with Elton. Elton, <laughs> Elton John. And in Hawaii, and he, we were having dinner, and he said, hey, do you want to come? I'm just about to go and lay down a track with uh, Kanye. Oh, oh yeah, I'd love to come. And he was making my beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy at the time, Kanye, so it was like his fourth album. And, and Elton came on to do all of, the, all of the lights and he just did this sort of piano part and, and sung a bit. And Elton said, Kanye, how is, how's the album going? And Kanye went, we're just we're like taking music to another level. This is gonna be like one of the greatest albums ever made. And I went, oh, good for you. <laughs> That was my only interaction with him, really, because he just sort of looked at us a bit like we were just there, you know, with he wanted us to talk to Welton. But, but yeah, so I'm a big Kanye West fan. Are you surprised? No, well, he's one of the greats. Yeah, he's one of the greats. There you go. He's literally one of the greats. What's, um, what's one of your biggest regrets? Mm, God. Well, I have so many, it's hard to say. But I think it's falling out with people is, is, a, is a horrible thing. So I think every time you fall out with someone, whoever they are, it's, it, it's, I hate that distance that you have with people mm. who were once friends or you know partners or whatever. I hate that. Mm. So they're, they're def- that's definitely regrets, you know. And sometimes it's hard, isn't it, if you let time pass and you sometimes never get those relationships back to what they were. So I think that's that's, a, good one. that's a regret. And what's the three things that make you happy? Um, chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> That's the main one. I'm with you on that. No, my son is the thing that makes me happy. He's he's the person that makes me happier than than anything. So just in doing anything with him is great, mm-hmm. you know. And seeing him happy, mm-hmm. it's very infectious when you're with you know a kid who's happy. And so yeah, he makes me happy. My my friends make me happy. My mum makes me happy. My dogs make me very happy because it's very uncomplicated, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So even you had a really bad day and you get home and your dogs are pleased to see you, it's like oh. Somebody loves me. So they make me happy too. But also when when I've written a book and I'm finally handed the finished product, that makes me very happy too because I feel a sense of pride. Now, I'm not saying it's the same as giving birth. It's not. <laughs> but it does feel a bit like something that sort of was in you and now is 
outside of you. I mean, I'm like, look, I don't know what it's like to give birth. I'm sure it's very difficult, very hard. But um, but it's an it's just an amazing feeling. It feels like you're cradling. The first time you you see it, it's like you're cradling a little baby. So when I get the first copy of the book, it's really exciting. And then I always give the first copy to my son, which is lovely as well. But it's 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 a very exciting thing because TV's different. You know, you make it, and it doesn't exist really in a physical form. Maybe a DVD, but DVDs are not beautiful objects like books, are they? Whereas a book can be a beautiful object. I mean, for reasons not to do with me, the way it's illustrated, the way it's designed. But I think it, there is an amazing sort of feeling of pride and excitement when I see it as a as a physical thing. And what inspires you today? Um, meeting you and seeing how wonderful you are in every mm. way, and. Oh, just that one. just <laughs> hearing about your, your your niece and nephew and that they like you know people I've never met who eager to read my new book I mean that's exciting as well and uh, yeah I came from doing a radio interview where I had to surprise a little girl called Roxy who'd come up from Devon and she didn't know she was going to meet me and it was just so sweet and then it's nice being able to do nice things for people as well like you know when you have some success and I said what do you want to do and she said well, I really want to go to um, uh, Harry Potter World. You know, I said, well, is there anything you want to do while you're in London? I want to go to Harry Potter World. I was like, well, it's in Leavesden. It's quite a way, way back. But, and then I immediately got on to, like, the publisher said, look, let's sort out the tickets. I want to pay. I want to send her and her family to Harry Potter World today. And just being able to do things like that is really nice, you know? So those kind of things really That's give me so pleasure. Lovely. Well, I feel like, you know, it, it's a wonderful thing, you know, and I meet kids who are ill and stuff like that, and just trying to do nice things for them is, is lovely, you know? Giving back is such a powerful thing. I it mean, is, and it's so, it's so is, pleasurable. Yeah. That's the thing is that I find it odd when people don't because I think it's actually a really nice feeling. Mm. And it's a much better feeling than than spending money in a stupid mm. way. Mm. You know, and I hear about, I won't mention them, but I, know, I heard about some guy who was like a billionaire type guy and on New Year's Day. They said, oh, he'd always, he would stay at... Um, that place in Barbados, Sandy Lane, and he, he'd, he'd always, on New Year's Day, he'd always spray the beach with champagne. And I just thought, well, why would you do that? Why not just say the, whatever? And it was probably like really expensive champagne. It's just mm. like, can give it to like Great Ormond Street Hospital or something like that. Just do something meaningful. That's going to be a much better feeling than this stupid showing off thing you're doing. Mm. So, um, yeah, it is a good feeling. Making, making other people happy is a lovely feeling. I mean, in a way, in seeing that, it's probably better than making yourself happy. And actually, the things you do to try and make mm. yourself happy, you think, oh, I'm just going to buy a new pair of shoes or do this or something. Yeah. But when you do something for someone else, it's a much it's a much greater feeling. So true. I mean, genuinely, the scientific research shows doing something for someone else benefits your own happiness greater. Mm. That's why I did this, this for podcast yourself. for you, you see, <laughs> to make you happy. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're a wonderful interviewer. That was lovely. What's the funniest thing you've ever heard? Oh, here we go. We're still going. That was the ending, I thought, but there you one, go. I've got, I've, got, I've got two more questions. What's the funniest thing you've ever heard and what's the best joke? You want to make people laugh? Oh, God. I mean, a joke that I could share that's like appropriate. No, you are you. I don't know. This is a big risk because I like some kind of quiet. <laughs> you know, obviously, I'm a comedian. Groucho Marx said that for the average person, an old lady in a wheelchair careering down a hill was funny. He said, for a comedian, it needs to be a real old lady. <laughs> I thought that was quite a good one because obviously, comedians sometimes have dark sense of humor. Um, a joke. I've just got 99 in my head. 
Okay, well, 99 is brilliant, isn't it? Um, but um, I, I don't know. There are some jokes that are just so fantastically brilliantly written that you think you're never going to do better than that. There's a joke in the Hancock episode where he says, Tony Hancock's where he goes, does the word, does the name Magna Carta mean nothing to you? Did she die in vain? Which I think is a great joke. There's also a great joke in Till Death Do Us Part where, again, it's a very old sitcom, you probably don't know about it, but, but it was this character called Alf Garnet and his wife and they're telling the story of, of, it was a Christmas episode, telling the story of Jesus and I go, and they were saying, oh, Joseph and Mary knocked on the inky inn door, but the inn was full. And then the wife goes, well, it was Christmas. You know, everywhere's busy at Christmas. But I just think that is an amazing, <laughs> that is an amazing joke. So those kind of jokes. There's also a brilliant joke, um, Peter Cook and the Dudley Moore sketch, where um, Dudley Moore hops in and he wants to play Tarzan. And he's like a one-legged person who wants to play Tarzan. I mean, I actually probably can do this sketch now, but it's, it is a funny sketch. It's made in the 60s. And he goes, well, you know, Tarzan is, is, is generally a biped. You're a uniped. And he goes, I've got nothing, nothing against your left leg. Um, the problem is neither of you, which is, again, again, you think that's a perfect joke. So those kind of perfect jokes. I like. There's also an amazing joke in Absolutely Fabulous where Adina's talking to, well, Jennifer Saunders is talking to her mum, played um, by June Whitfield. And she says, you know, inside, inside, she's trying to lose weight or something. She goes, inside, there's a, there's a thin person just, just, just trying to get out. And then her mum goes, just the one, dear. It's, again, <laughs> it's like, brilliant. So those kind of jokes where you just go, oh, you know, like you just think that's per- perfection, comic perfection. Mm-hmm. So those are the sort of jokes I would, um, you know, you think, oh, funny, I could think of anything that good. I mean, you did. I will tell yeah. you the rude joke when we're, we're not doing the, okay, great. The, the this because it might be divisive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, your final question, which I ask all my guests, mm. David, which, please answer honestly, mm. is what does live well, be well mean to you? I guess it means sort of try and do good, try and, try and be a good person and live a good life and, and it's going to make you happy and it's going to... You know you're gonna have a you're gonna have a better life in that way, you know. And it's trying to find a balance of all these things, isn't it? And I find it hard because I get invited to every school in the country, can't go to every one, but I can go to some, you know. And it's feeling to me it's it's a balance of things. If I've got to write my books, you know, I can't. If I went to schools every day for the, for the next five years, I would kids wouldn't want to see me anymore because I wouldn't have written any books. So it's it's just kind of getting a balance between all these things, and it's hard these, you know, to get this balance, but. The good thing is my son sort of forces me to stop work because I want to be with him and I want to spend time with him. Mm. And I hate the idea I'm just sort of sat there on a computer when I'm with him. So it's that balance, I think, is quite hard to come by. But but your son helps you with that. I love how mm. much you speak about your son. I think it's Well, he's the centre of, is... of my world and everything, all that matters is him mm. and his happiness. But that's such a lovely thing. Mm. It's such a beautiful thing and I think a great reminder, actually, the importance of family and friends and connection hmm. and your loved ones. So, yeah. so many of us can get disconnected when we get pulled into work. Yeah. And having that around us. Yeah. And also children just bring in just a wonderful energy and they're mm. so innocent, you see. So they... A playful energy. Yeah. And just the way they look at the world and just, just you know, you, and also you can do silly jokes every day, with, every day, every morning. We used to have a joke where I'd 
put on the James Bond theme and then I'd steal his underpants so when he was getting dressed for school and then run around the kitchen and he'd have to try and get the underpants on my head. I mean, and you think that might be funny like once. Well, we did it like a hundred times. I mean, <laughs> you know, it never stopped going funny. Brilliant. So it just for me is like always having time to laugh and play, mm. you know. And I feel very lucky in the things I do that I get to be, be playful. As an actor, you it's almost you remain as a child, really, because you get to play the whole time. Mm. And as a writer, you know, you're getting to create. So again, it's just being playful. Mm. Thank you so much. Thank for you very on. much for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please can I ask one huge favour. If you could subscribe, share and rate this podcast, it would mean an immense amount to me and all the fantastic guests who come on to share their expertise and knowledge with us. It will keep this podcast growing and it will allow us to continue making episodes. Until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.